Thank you, Stu, very much. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. And those of you who are visiting today, we are delighted to have you here with us. Let us know if you need anything. Uh, we'll, ushers are back there to help out, and uh, we'll all be helped, uh, be glad to direct you wherever you need to go in the building if uh, you need something. So, welcome, welcome. And to those of you who are listening online, welcome to you as well. We're back in the book of 2 Corinthians. And if you'd like to uh, turn to chapter 11, we will carry on in this uh, excellent letter that has proved to be uh, very challenging in many ways because of its character. Uh, we've, We've got enough people visiting here, I feel almost compelled to do a review of the entire book so far. It's only been most of the year that we've been covering it, so it shouldn't take too long but basically, this last letter of the book of, Second, uh, of, of Paul to the Corinthian church is kind of a, it's, it's like a mop-up letter. So the, the Corinthian church, Paul started, uh, started off going great, but then problems started creeping in. Immorality, false teaching, and division was a huge issue in that church. Huge issue, big party spirit. Some people wanted to follow different different uh, leaders like Paul or Peter or Apollos, and some even uh, citing the name of Jesus Christ as uh, they would probably presume themselves to be the most holy group of all. But nonetheless, they were using Christ's name and Paul's name and so on as a bludgeon to uh, inflict uh, their superiority upon their brothers and sisters. And of course, the church was suffering as a result of that. Paul addressed them, and as he did so, he was pretty firm uh, in that first letter. They didn't seem to appreciate it too well uh, in some circles, and so he wrote another letter that was even stronger, which he said he, which we do not have, but he said that he regretted that he felt the necessity of having to write it. But now uh, was upon the report of Titus that things were improved. He wrote this last letter full of encouragement that progress had been made, that many of the divisions were gone, that their willingness to listen to what Paul had to say as the properly appointed, anointed apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Uh, He was encouraged by all of that, but there was still a few holdouts, and so we've talked about that as well as we've gone through this, this, this letter. And apparently the number is fairly, was fairly small by this time, but there still seems to be someone who was probably in leadership, uh, an elder or perhaps someone uh, was uh, one of the pastors there. We're not sure who, nobody's named, but uh, just the individuals referred to or the group of individuals referred to those that have these opinions still about the Apostle Paul. And in this last section now, Paul is, one of the reasons it's, let me back up, one of the reasons that this letter is so challenging is, as those of you who have been here have realized, and we've talked about before, it's incredibly personal. And in many ways, this is probably the most personal of all Paul's letters in the sense that, he just reveals his heart and the, the, the tug, the pull back and forth of his 
love for them on the one hand, his zeal for them on the one hand, but also his frustration with those who are still um, walking in rebellion, not just against him, but against the Lord. And so he's back and forth in this. It's, it's been a challenge to kind of put all this together and keep all the pieces together because in one section he'll be praising them to the ceiling and then the next section he's going, but uh, you have this problem here and we need to deal with it. And so it's back and forth and Paul is also revealing his heart for them and how he has felt, which he doesn't do that in too many of the other letters. He's, it's much more teaching. I mean, he'll talk about his, his love for for other churches as well, but in this one, it is all over the place. So it's been it's been a, a wonderful walk through this chap through this uh, this letter, and we're getting towards the end of it. And and as we will wrap up the section that we're talking about today, and we'll finalize it next week. Uh, is this will be kind of closing up the main part of the letter, his main reason for writing the letter. But this section here, uh, we uh, began looking at last week. It starts in chapter 11, verse 1. And that first section, 1 through 15, is what we looked at before. He begins by saying, let me, bear with me with a little foolishness. And from chapter 11, verse 1, on into the middle of chapter 12, he then goes on to talk about this little foolishness. It's the biggest section of the letter. It's kind of his final salvo against those who would rebel against the authority of Christ that's been vested in him, and to give a final defense of his apostleship and why the gospel that he has given is the one that is genuine and not those against uh, not those th that gospel that's coming from those that are walking in opposition to him. So the first area of foolishness we looked at last week in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 11. And that was the foolishness of jealousy. And we noted that jealousy is usually one of those things that has a very negative connotation or if if someone uh, is jealous we say to them Oh, you're just being jealous. We're very, we tend to be dismissive of that. We tend to look at it and think of it as, as a weakness on their part. If they just had a little more strength of character, well, they wouldn't be jealous kind of stuff. Um, Paul turns that on his ear and say, yeah, I'm jealous for you. A little, it's a little foolish. So you may, you, you've regarded me, particularly the ones that have been in opposition to him, have regarded him as being weak, have regarded him as being foolish, have regarded him as being of no account for various and sundry reasons. We've talked about those a lot. But in this particular case, Paul turns that around and says, yeah, uh, that which you call foolish, uh, I'm jealous for you with a divine jealousy. And we looked at the character and nature of God as a jealous God, just uh, briefly. And then Paul talks about the kinds of things that he's jealous for. This whole, this whole letter we have kind of summed up uh, in the, the title, which uh, you see in the bulletin there, of Tearing Down Strongholds, which comes from chapter 10 and verses 4 and 5. That That's what Paul's whole goal has been among the Corinthian church, is to tear down those strongholds of wickedness and idolatry and false thinking and immorality, and do, to do so with the, the arguments, the truth, the wisdom of God. 
So as we are involved, as just as Paul was, as we are engaged in various aspects of tearing down strongholds, where we're confronting the wickedness of the world, confronting the false thinking and teaching of the world with God's truth, how do we go about doing that? How do we go about doing that? You know, the world has its own ideas about how you go about effecting change, right? Um, just recently, uh, I'm not sure how it came across my email, or maybe it was Facebook, I don't recall now. But uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the website change.org. Anybody seen that? Maybe you've even signed on some of the petitions and so on. It's a grassroots petition kind of app sort of thing that people can send in projects, things they're concerned about in their communities. And it's all over the, not just all over the country, but it's even all over the world. And people can sign on petitions. And it's, it's about getting the weight of public opinion to, to work on certain officials or communities or, or organizations, whatever it might be. And that's one, one, uh, one way of, of bringing about change in the world's ideas and in the world's thinking. And it can be effective, right? You, you get, you get a, a, lot of, a lot of weight will move something, right? And that's the basic idea. And that may be a good thing or it may be a bad thing that is being moved, but nonetheless, a lot of weight can move things. Yes, that's true. And then there's the whole might makes right kind of approach to change. Um, as long as you're strong enough, you've got either big enough muscles, big enough army, big enough ego, big enough mouth, big enough something or the other that you can intimidate, browbeat, force, compel, coerce, whatever others into change. Yes, it can be effective. Yes, change can be brought about. But is that the nature of divine jealousy, the divine, uh, divine change that uh, the Lord wants? Uh, is that his method of tearing down strongholds? Paul says it's through uh, righteous arguments and, and correcting the thinking. And that doesn't happen necessarily by browbeating people into submission. I mean, they might change outwardly, but what have you really accomplished inwardly? Probably not much. Paul's approach is different, and the whole idea of the foolishness is the theme of this entire section. The first section here is 1 through 15. In a moment, I'm going to read the next section, which is the bookend to it, which is at the end of it, starting at verse 29. And Lord willing, next week we'll talk about the center section, which is at the heart of all of it. But in this, this foolishness, Paul is saying, I basically, I'm willing to be thought a fool by you or by anybody else if it will accomplish God's purposes, God's will, in God's way. And so last week, we looked at his jealousy for their, jealousy for their faithfulness. He wasn't content to just take the old Bart Simpson uh, motif and go, you know, whatever, when it came to their faithfulness. He was jealous for it. He was jealous for their freedom from false teachers and from the freedom from being manipulated, which they had, they were being manipulated quite a bit, apparently, and we'll look more at that next week. Um, and then um, he was jealous for their, their safety, and we, we closed with that idea of safety from the oppression that they were experiencing, from the false teachers that were there, from the deceit of those teachers, 
from the, and, and, and safety, he didn't want them to suffer the harm or the judgment that was going to be coming to them. So he had a lot of jealousy on their behalf that they would be right in a right standing before God that would last not only for now, but for eternity. So now the bookend or the companion part of this passage, again, begins at verse 29 of chapter 11. And I'll read on through chapter 12 and verse 13. So rather long introduction, a little bit of a review for the book, but hopefully that will be helpful to give you some context as we come now to this section. So uh, if you're able, please, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29. Who is weak, Paul asks, and I am not weak. Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. So another... Um, bit of review, just to, again, round out the context. For those of you who were here last week, you might remember the emphasis that was, is placed through this entire section, beginning at chapter 11, verse 1, on through 13 of 12, is the word boasting, over and over and over and over again. And Paul is using it as a, as a figure of speech to, to strike something home in their minds. Paul labors also to say that his boasting is foolishness. But he's, it's what he's boasting about that is, is uh, of note. And that is not his own abilities, but he's boasting in what God has done and what God has said and what God's appointment is and 
and the very power of God that's enabled all of these things. So we've seen that already here in, again in this passage. All right. So we've talked about jealousy as a foolishness, as something that the world will look at and go, huh, you just need to settle down, Paul. It's not that big deal. You, big of a deal. You should just let us go our own way and do our own thing because after all, we have just as good as ideas as you do. And that's basically what the Corinthian church, at least some there, had been saying. But even more foolish than jealousy is, uh, even if you look at this and go, all right, Paul was motivated jealousy out of genuine love. Okay. Even if it's motivated that way, uh, even more foolish than that is, in the eyes of the wicked, is weakness. Weakness. Now, if uh, any of you are aficionados of any kinds of uh, visual entertainment and watch movies from time to time, particularly if there's any sort of action or adventure in it, and you got the bad guy, the ant- the antagonist, just take. I mean, it's 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 cliche. We still watch these. It's like it's the same movie script, change the name, change the locale, and they're all about the same. Bad guy comes in. He's a real jerk. Uh, but he's got lots of power, lots of money, lots of resources, whatever. It looks hopeless. The good guys are weak, few, and small, but they're really good, and they really love everybody, and they really want everything to go well, and somehow they always prevail. Am I right? Is that basically the movie plot of like 90% of them out there? Uh, I was just watching one the other day that, uh, oh, the whole thing was about how, yeah, you're, you... The hero, you know, you're just weak. You got nothing. You're just, uh, we're powerful. We're, and uh, we step on anybody we want to step on. Nobody can stop us. And of course, they get taken down. It's very satisfying. <laughs> but you know what? It's not. That's not just a modern thing. Uh, I, just this morning, as I was thinking about this, and uh, I was going to introduce this, I remember uh, from long ago. Uh, reading Beowulf. Anybody read Beowulf in high school? Ah, the few, the proud, the the bored. All right. Um, but Beowulf, there's a line in there. Um, it's the idea. I don't remember the. I don't remember the exact line. Like I said, it just popped into my head this morning. This idea of of, of weakness being something that is foolish and despised and of, of no worth whatsoever is not new. Beowulf was written. Ooh, long time ago. And one of the lines in there, the, one of the characters is bemoaning the fact that there aren't any heroes left anymore since that Jesus of Nazareth came around. That long ago. And let's take it back even a further bit to, oh, maybe all the way to the Garden of Eden. What was Satan basically saying to Adam and Eve? You don't have enough strength. You need the power of God. Eat this fruit. You'll know everything. You'll be like God. The rest of it, if you don't do that, you're just going to be a, you know, a weak, worthless, not living up to your potential. That's not how you're going to get ahead in the world. It's basically the temptations there. So at the heart of of the wickedness and rebellion against God is the desire to say, I'm going to get my way, my way. With my strength and my wisdom and my ability 
and I don't want to be considered weak. I don't want to be seen as someone who doesn't have it all together. I don't want to be seen as someone who doesn't have all the abilities to accomplish everything. I don't want to be seen as uh, by the world out there that, that uh, uh, somehow if I'm just you know, nice and show the love of Christ and, and speak his word, that that's enough to change hearts. No, if I want to change hearts, if I want to change the world, it's got to be my, my might and my strength. Paul says, no, no. In this section, you probably already picked up as I read through it. The theme of this is not the foolishness of jealousy, but the foolishness of weakness, at least as far as the world is concerned. In fact, that whole loving motivation thing, uh, that, as far as the wicked are concerned, as far as the world is concerned, that just strengthens the impression of weakness, right? Because it's not self-serving. The good, you know, if you're, if you're, if you love people and are kind to people, well, that's that just shows that uh, you don't have enough strength to take it by yourself. You got to kind of weasel people around, I guess, by uh, trying to fool them into the fact that you fool them by saying you love them. But. In this closing section of this, this passage here, Paul emphasizes again and again that he ultimately he is weak. And that's not a condition that we normally think of as effective in warfare. And in physical warfare or even spiritual warfare. I remember years ago I went to a concert uh, by a Christian artist by the name of Carmen. Some of you might remember that. Um, and I, once was enough. Uh, but, um, you know, aside from the, the music aspect of it, he had a lot of, actually, some pretty good things to say in between the songs. And the gospel was fairly well presented, which I was happy about. But he made a statement there that I've never forgotten, at least, maybe not word for word, but the tenor of what he said, I've never forgotten because of its error. And I was like, oh, well, you were doing pretty well there. He was talking about being, you know, Christ is the lamb and, and of God. Okay, so far, so good. Um, but he's also the lion of Judah. So, um, you know, we're, we're lambs and now it's time for us to become lions and we're, we're going to roar and we're going to change the world. And I was like, no, he's the lion for a reason. It's not us that are going to do that. It's not us going to change hearts. It's not us getting up there going, yeah, that somehow that's going to make the world sit up and take notice. It's so it's, 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 oh, it is alluring, is it not? To want to stand up there and say, if you're in Paul's position, to stand up and say, I'm the big apostle and I've got the guns to back it up. And in a way he does say that. But the guns are not what we expect. He doesn't have a slash and burn approach to this. It's through God's word and through prayer and through ministry and doing the things that he's been called upon to do faithfully that demonstrate the reality, that the reality is of God and not him. Ultimately, that's a position of weakness, right? It's because you're just the instrument in the master's hand. Once you realize the real source of your strength, then that weakness doesn't seem so foolish after all. So just as Paul was willing to be thought a fool for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ, so when we are engaging in the warfare 
of the kingdom in our testimony, in our living out a life of Christ-likeness before others, in all of those things. There are those that are going to think you foolish. They think Christianity is a crutch for you. It's going to be think that you, you, you've got nothing to stand on but some mystical kind of wishful thinking. But you and I know, if we are in Lord Jesus Christ, that that perspective is entirely wrong. And that it is the power of Christ in us that allows us, even though we are the weak, the despised of the world, to bring glory to him. And the Lord does great things through his people, through his church, uh, even though the fallen world looks at us and goes, well, you guys are just weak. You got nothing really to offer us. And throughout the course of world history, of course, the world has learned that that's not always the case. <laughs> um, they've, they've learned differently. And many have come to Christ as a result of seeing the weakness uh, the, of the kind that Paul's talking about in action. Because uh, when we are weak, then he is strong. That is one of the longest introductions I've done in a long, long time. Now we're going to get to it. So let's take our, our Bibles again. We'll take a look at chapter 11, beginning at verse 29. <clears throat> so Paul asks this question. He, he is, it's, it's 29 is kind of a, 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 a transitional passage between the jealousy or, or the, the center section, not the jealousy section, but the center section and this last one. Um, the, he's been anxious. There's been toil. There's been hardship. All kinds, those kinds of things. But Paul is talking here about this powerful weakness that is manifested in several different ways. And here in verses 29 through 33, it has, we're talking about the, the weakness of sympathy. The weakness of sympathy. To feel with those that are suffering. To feel with those that are in hardship and affliction. Uh, to have a tenderness of heart toward others is, I mean, the world is often confused about this, are they not? On the one hand, um, the world thinks it's commendable that people are sympathetic. You have all, you know, lots of charitable things that go on, that go on and all of that. So you get the heart rendering, heart rendering, heart rending um, commercials, you know, with um, children or puppies or cats or something else with their eyes looking at you. And their eyes are like a million miles deep, and they're you know they're looking for donations and so on, and then they're looking for they're trying to create sympathy, to feel with the hardship that those individuals or those animals are feeling. We're all, we've all experienced that, but yet on the other hand, the uh, uh, the macho Rambo approach to you know kill them all and let God sort them out is is also glorified. And I don't think the world realizes that you really can't have it both ways and not rip yourself apart. But I want you to think about sympathizing with those, in this particular case, Paul's talking about with those who have been wronged. You know, um, if you're sympathetic with others, truly sympathetic with others, it's going to show itself in a few ways. And the first one, in verse 29 there, says, who is weak and I am not weak. 
Sympathy that leads to a, a willing vulnerability. You're identifying with those that are vulnerable, that are in affliction, that are weak. And you're not, a, you're, not, you're not afraid of that. You don't back off from that. You don't worry about what other people think. Um, in other verses of Scripture, another verse speaks of it as weeping with those who weep, mourning with those who mourn. Um, you know, how does that stack up to, and I'm particularly speaking from the masculine side of the house, you know, we don't, we don't cry. We don't do that. We don't show that. No. Um, because that's weak. And so there are those that believe that. If you're just doing it to be stoic, um, and just because, so you don't want to be seen as weak, well, refusing to be sympathetic is just no more than just being selfish. Um, on the other hand, if you're just crying crocodile tears because it's crocodile tears and you're trying to play a game, that is a real weakness because that's showing a major character flaw, again, of pride. Let me do this so I can be seen to people and how sympathetic I really am and aren't, am I not wonderful. But when you're truly sympathetic with others and their, their hearts are broken, uh, your heart will identify with them and your heart will break with them. Paul is saying that basically here. Uh, this whole idea of weakness when we get to the section next week, it's almost a temptation to go back and do the center section, but the way that he's put this together, it's moving towards the middle. So I'm going to uh, follow that pattern here. But this, these words take on a whole bunch more meaning when you look at Paul's credentials, his resume. That's the center part of this whole section. And you look at the stuff that he endured, and he is about the farthest thing from a weakling that you could ever imagine. Physically, emotionally, in his character, integrity, the whole nine yards. But Paul says, when others are weak around me, I'm sympathi I sympathize with them, and I come alongside and want to uphold them in their weakness. And that leads me to the next part of verse 29, who is made to fall and I am not indignant. Sympathy that just says, I'm really sorry for your affliction, but doesn't seek to address the cause of it, particularly if it's an external cause, um, to try to defend against it. it. Okay, that's nice that you feel bad for me, but why don't you do something? This is putting feet and hands to that sympathy. The word indignant there is... Uh, not just a little huffy kind of indignant, um, in, indignity. This, is, this indignation, the word means uh, being fiery hot and burning. So, so for, I, am, I am on fire for them uh, with a righteous anger. This, you can see how this really corresponds well to that first section of jealousy. A jealousy for the well-being of others to the point that I am ready to to stand up and defend those that have been wronged. Um, the uh, commentator RVG Tasker made this statement here, which I, I stopped to think about it when I saw it. It just stopped me in my tracks. I never thought of it this way before, but I think he's absolutely right. He says, without moral indignation, 
Love is imperfect. Think about that for a minute. Without moral indignation, love is imperfect. The idea of, the, of many in the world is that love just means you're all sweetness and light. After all, you know, uh, you don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to say anything. You, don't, you, know, you just want to be friends with everybody. Da, 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 da. But there has to be a point. When you see, particularly when you see others afflicted by sin, by oppression, in this particular case, Paul was dealing with a church that was having to deal with false teachers that were taking advantage of the congregation and using them for their own means. And Paul was not going to sit there and take it lightly. Oh, it's okay. We know they mean well. None of that pablum. Paul... Um, rose up, wrote the letters, paid his visit. He'd actually paid a visit in between these letters uh, that was a painful one because he had to call them out and do the hard thing. Think about it as, let's, let's switch over to Jesus who is noted as, you know, loving and kind. Yes, he was. But do you also remember Matthew 23 where he takes the Pharisees to task. Seven woes are pronounced in that chapter against the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, for their cruelty, for their error, for their outright evil. Jesus did not let them get away with it. He called them on the carpet for it. Um, And there is such a thing as righteous indignation, righteous anger, and Christ exercised it toward those that were in blatant rebellion and hypocrisy against him. That's our example. Yes, we walk with love towards others, but that love is expressed to those who are around us. When we see a world lost in error and we keep our mouths shut, there's a problem with our hearts. There should be some moral indignation on our part at the error and the cruelty of the adversary that is being imposed upon God's creatures. And Paul is, you can see why this kind of weakness is a powerful weakness. This sympathy is not just a wringing of hands and boy, I really feel bad for them. It's a willingness to act in defense of those who are lost in error, suffering under oppression. But it's also interesting, when you look at verses 30 33, these three verses, um, or four verses, can be a little bit disconcerting and confusing when you look at it. It's like, well, okay. It says, all right, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. Okay, tracking with him there. That sounds good. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who's blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. Okay, not lying about what? Well, not lying that he's glorying in the weaknesses that the Lord has brought. Okay. And then he talks about Damascus. You know, if you're familiar with Paul's history at all, you know that after his, after his conversion, he was there in Damascus and he began to teach the disciples there and so on, many of whom were not too sure about this guy because he had been just not long ago taking them to prison and presiding over their deaths and confiscating their property and all that kind of stuff. But Paul just throws this in here 
about uh, getting let down in a basket. And when I looked at that, I thought, why is he saying that here? In the earlier, in that center section, as he's going through his resume and all the things, that would be a natural place to put that item. But he doesn't put it there. He puts it here. And I sit there and think, why, why, why? Why would he put that here? And then it dawned on me. Because we're in this, this idea of sympathy and feeling with one another and feeling with those that are oppressed. What, is that, what does that sympathy look like? Yes, you're willing to be vulnerable. Yes, you're, you're willing to stand up at the same time and vigorously defend others. Great. But what happens if you take all that on yourself? If I take it on myself to go out and save the world, I might start off with good intentions of doing so under the power and authority and oversight of God, but it'd be really easy in my corrupt human nature to take it all on myself and go, yeah, you know what? I got the training. I got the experience. I got the knowledge. I've got all this stuff. I got a plan. Let's get to it. Paul's sympathy is, is tempered here by a humble dependence upon others. And it's dependence in a couple of ways. 30 and 31, as he's, here's some of the, the things that show weakness here in his sympathy. Well, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. Who is, the, who is Paul ultimately dependent upon? He's dependent upon the Lord. He's dependent upon the Lord and, and, and clearly in that dependence is walking with a, with a profound sense of accountability before God in everything that he does and says. So his sympathy demonstrates that he's dependent. In the way that he expresses his sympathy, it demonstrates that dependence upon the Lord. But then the, the Damascus thing, what's going on there? Think about it for just a second. Put yourself in Paul's place. Here's a guy who has been threatening, imprisoning, uh, all of this stuff against believers and seeking them out, search and destroy mission. Everybody's afraid of him. Um, who let Paul down in the basket? The Christians. The very people that just weeks before he had been persecuting. Now put yourself in Paul's place and think, all right, um, you guys got a good grip on that rope up there? Can I really trust what they're about to do? Are they going to hang me out to dry? Just let me swing there on the, on the halfway up the wall and then go get the, go get the authorities? Paul put his dependence in the Lord but he also showed, because he was genuinely sympathetic with those at that particular time with, at the Damascus incident, sympathy with those he had been persecuting, he put himself in their hands and walked with a dependency upon others. You and I need to do that as well. Now, I know, you know, the whole Invictus poem you know, I'm the master of my fate, commander of my soul, kind of nonsense. That's the image of the, the strong man in the world. Well, we truly are 
made to be dependent upon the Lord and also dependent upon one another. He's created us to be a body, not just a bunch of individuals who have no connection with each other. So I, I just think it's a remarkable thing. That, and, I, and then I say, okay, I see why you put that there. Because Paul was willing to place himself in the hands of those he'd been trying to imprison and kill. And to their credit, they didn't hang him out to dry. He was able to escape. So this first weakness has to do with sympathy. Now, the second weakness here is in, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. And he goes on and talks about all of this revelations and visions and getting caught up into the heavens and talking about this other guy, you know, in the body or out of the body, I don't know. And then he, he's very clearly talking about himself here. He's just, I think there's part of it that Paul, no doubt, looked back upon that experience with a, uh, an incredible degree of wonder as what the Lord had done there. Almost didn't seem real, and yet he knew it was. Paul had a lot of knowledge, did he not? I mean, he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a trained rabbi. Even more than that, he'd been caught up into the heavens, seen things that uh, nobody could see and nobody could utter. Uh, spent three years in the wilderness being discipled by Christ himself and ministered to there before he returned to public service. Uh, Paul knew a lot of stuff. What does, what does uh, a lot of knowledge have a tendency to do to someone um, who may not have a whole lot of, of discipline or character. It gets turned into what? A weapon. It gets turned into a weapon. There's a lot of strength in knowledge. A whole bunch of strength in knowledge. The more knowledge you have, the less fear you have. The more knowledge you have, the more capability you have. The more surety you have. All those things speaking um, in a fleshly manner. Um, we've, we've got some firefighters in here. We train, don't we? Why do we train? So that when we go into a situation, whether it's a house fire or a wildland fire or an extrication situation or something else, that you don't screw up and hurt somebody worse. You're able to save the day. You're able to uh, get somebody out. You're able to put the fire out, protect property, whatever it is. Um, we don't generally put, you know, probationary rookies on the on the business end of a hose they're first shot out do we they're on probation for a reason we kind of protect them because they don't know enough yet to be put in those situations but we also know how we continue on with the fire service analogy here do we know firefighters that know a lot know they've got a lot of experience and they'll charge into anything without even necessarily thinking about it. Yeah. There's a certain adrenaline rush that comes with that, a sense of power, a sense of ability that uh, can be kind of addicting. So we, we need to find a way to temper our knowledge, do we not? Well, it's the same thing here when Paul is talking about the knowledge that he has. And he goes on, this whole thing is, why is he talking all about, uh, about all of these 
visions and so on. First of all, he is trying to communicate to them, yeah, I'm not just speaking out of the side of my hat. I do have revelation from God here a lot that goes along with my commission. I have the right and the ability and the opportunity to declare it to you, and I will do that. But Paul's knowledge is tempered by a few things. First one is his recognition there in chapter 12 and verse 1. I must go on to be, go on boasting, he says, and I, I, he's, he's being facetious. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So if I just go on and talk to you about this sort of stuff, it, it, uh, it won't accomplish much, except you need to know that I know where the source of the revelation is. When we have our brilliant ideas, and all of us have brilliant ideas at one time or the other, do we not? We all get these brilliant ideas. We just know that this is going to work. This is the thing. Uh, in whatever sphere of life we're in, we come up with an idea of how to do something, what is right, what's wrong, and so on. And uh, if we come up with it on our own, we can be kind of pleased with ourselves that we came up with that. Um, my, my family knows that I like to put things together out of scrap. I mean, I get, I've got all this stuff in my garage and we need something. I go out there and I go, let's see, what can we put together? And I put it together, whatever it is. It may not look like much, but it's sturdy. And uh, I stand back and I go, yeah, that turned out pretty well. I like the way that looks. That's going to work. Right? There's a satisfaction in that. Well, it would probably look a whole lot better and probably be even sturdier had I used a blueprint that somebody who actually knew what they were doing put together. Paul is saying, I don't just have this knowledge, but this knowledge came, comes from the master architect. He recognizes the source of where these visions and revelations came from. They weren't out of his own imagination. And he gives acknowledgement there. So that tempers his knowledge, his use of that knowledge. And then, when he, as he carries on in verses 2 through 4, as he talks about the third heaven and whether it's in or out of the body, he's not sure. Um, the things that he heard could not be told. A, a man may not utter. In, in looking at that, Paul is tempered by the enormity of the knowledge. Uh, Spurgeon used to get, uh, Charles Spurgeon, before he used to get in the pulpit, this prince of preachers, would get physically ill, particularly early on in his ministry. And he, he realized and basically gave, gave the, uh, the uh, assent to the Lord and his knowledge is that the reason he felt ill was not a lack of desire to preach, but he was so aware of how enormous and how incredible this knowledge was, this truth of God was that he was essentially terrified that he would misuse it, that he would misspeak regarding it, that he would, that he would lead anyone to think that this wasn't important, that he would feel ill to his stomach at the thought of the potential of doing violence to God's word. As he was aware of the enormity of it, Spurgeon knew a lot of stuff, incredible ministry, but that he was humbled and there by the, he was tempered in that knowledge by a recognition of how enormous it was. And, and look at verses five and six. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but, not on my, but on my own behalf, I won't. 
And what's he say? I mean, he's just saying um, what the Lord did, the Lord did. Um, I'm not going to boast on myself. The Lord, whatever the Lord basically wants to do with me in that knowledge and those revelations, great, wonderful, I'll boast in that. But I'm not worth anything, is basically what he's saying as far as that goes. The only thing you can boast about, he says, except for my weaknesses. Yep, I'll hang on. To, I'll hang on to those. I'm resting in, in, uh, in the weaknesses that the Lord has given to me. It says, though, if I wish to boast, uh, going on uh, in verse 6, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. Because... He has the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. What's he saying? It all seems like a bunch of back and forth. I think it boils down to this. Paul has this knowledge. It's incredible knowledge. He's had it from the very hand of God. But he's tempered. He's humbled um, by by recognizing the source, by recognizing how enormous it is. And he tempers this knowledge and the distribution of it by refusing, and I'm going to use the word notoriety. He refuses the notoriety. He refuses the accolades. When people know a lot of stuff, they write all their books, and they do all that sort of thing, you know, they're the darlings of of whoever reads them and listens to them. And it can be really easy to fall prey to believing your own press and thinking, you are so wonderful because of the notoriety of what you legitimately know. And there needs to be a point where you go, you know what, I don't really necessarily want people to know what I know. I, I, I want them to just take me for what I am and be satisfied with that. I don't want the notoriety. I don't want it. You think, okay, that's enough, right? Nope. <laughs> How else does the Lord temper us and humble us when we know his word and, and use it then in, in uh, spiritual warfare to tear down strongholds? Verses seven through nine, famous passage here where Paul says, uh, in order to humble me and keep me from being conceited, he gives me this thorn in the flesh. And of course, there's all kinds of discussion about what that thorn in the flesh was um, I think probably the majority consensus was a weakness of eyesight, but there could be any number of other things. Uh, it could be everything from his appearance, physical appearance, because that's one of the things that was he was criticized for. His lack of ability to speak in the whole flowery thing. Now, whether it was a lack of ability or his choice not to go all flowery and rhetorical, um, that's up for grabs, but most would think it's something that's in the flesh, something that would make his ministry difficult to do and to carry out. Eyesight is one because of some of the references in the letters to how he's writing in a big hand, so which presumably he could see what he was writing. In any case, Paul's knowledge was tempered by the limitations of the flesh, his ability to do it. Anybody here want to be an effective servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah, I see a couple of hands. I'm hoping there's hands going up everywhere in your head anyway. Anybody want to be a more effective testimony 
a testifier to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody want to do that? Yeah. Anybody want to be uh, a, a better um, expositor of God's word to really understand what's going on there? Anybody want to do that? Um, anybody have any physical limitations to doing any of that? By physical, I mean not just ability to see or whatever, but anything that has to do with our bodies, our minds, the way our brains work, um, uh, our energy, our health, um, and, or maybe some deformity, something else. But all of those things uh, are there. And it's like, Lord, if you just take the stuff away, I could be Superman, I could be Superwoman, I could do all this, this great stuff. Yeah, and you'd also be so cocky that no one could live with you. We have our physical affirmities that help to temper these great truths. For one reason, it keeps us from being conceited, yes. But for another reason, it's like people look at us and go, not much to that guy or that gal, but wow, what they say. It's got to be from somewhere else. And the Lord gets the glory, and that's the whole point. Amen. So that's, it's a power, that's why this weakness becomes powerful. And notice in verses 7 through 9 here, the emphasis upon power. The power is not in, in uh, Paul. Verse 9 says, my grace is, uh, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If what you say in the world as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is to have any effect whatsoever, it will not be because you're powerful, it's because Christ is powerful. You need to get out of the way and let him be seen and not yourself. Verse 10 sort of wraps up and sort of brings full circle the thought that was begun in chapter 11 and verse 30 that idea of dependence. Look at verse, uh, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. You know, here's the great apostle Paul hiding in a basket, being let down from the wall. Not a very glorious exit, is it? And yet he says, I'm content with this because when I am weak, then I am strong. And finally, the last two verses of this section, or three verses, 11 through 13. Weakness to sympathize, absolutely. Weakness that will temper our knowledge so that we use it properly and for the Lord's glory. And finally, weakness that confirms authenticity. So, and again, this is Paul's final shot uh, regarding the authentic nature of his commission as an apostle to that church and many others. He says, I've been a fool. You're returning to this idea of a little foolishness. Okay, I've had to talk about all this stuff. You forced me to it. I ought to have been commended by you. And he should have been. I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. And this term super apostles, he's used a couple times before. That those that were looking up, look, you know, basically vaunting themselves at Paul's expense, saying, well, okay, he's an apostle, but we're better. Um, Paul is basically saying, I was not inferior to these super apostles in what he said, is the idea. He fulfilled his commission. He spoke God's word to them. 
So he, his authenticity is confirmed by what has been said. All of his arguments so far, not just here, but in person and uh, even prior to the, the, the big problem blowing up there as he started the church there. Uh, if you're paying attention to what he'd been saying all along, you'd know that those things were from the Lord. But even more than that, uh, verse 12, uh, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So confirmed not only by what he said, but by what he did. Works that had to be, uh, ha had to have no other source than God himself. That's where the power came from. And Paul is saying, I'm in the background here. God has done this. I've been here. I've been the instrument. But God is the one who's done these things. Guide to what I've said. Guide to what's been done. And that confirms that, yes, my apostleship is authentic. My commission is authentic. And therefore, uh, Corinthians, um, we need to, those of you that are still the holdouts, need to, need to acknowledge that God is the one who's done this and it's not of men. This uh, last verse will wrap up with verse 13. Paul says, In what manner are you less favored than the rest of the churches except that I myself did not burden you? This is also part of what he did. But his love for them is second to none. No other church could, uh, they couldn't say, well, other people got treated better than we did. Paul said, no. Um, and with the kind of the sarcasm that we've seen Paul use from time to time in this letter, here we have it here. Uh, let's see, how did I harm you? Oh yeah, I didn't burden you. Forgive me for this wrong. Um, no, he's, he's, if they would just recognize his love for them and his sacrifice for them and the authenticity of his work, beyond the appearance of weakness and recognize that weakness for what it really is, the power of Christ being exalted in him. The fact is that sinners will think you are weak if you live for Christ in the worst sense of that. But when you are weak enough to sympathize, weak enough to be humble in spite of how much you know, weak enough to rest in God's working and not your own, then you will truly be a useful servant of the Most High God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for this tremendous passage. There's so much here that speaks to us, not just from the matter of learning what Paul did and then how he approached things, but for our own behavior in the world and how we conduct ourselves both within the church and without Lord, if doing things your way means that the world thinks of us as weak, then, Lord, let us be content with that. For our desire, Lord, is to bring you glory and not ourselves. Help us truly to be sympathetic with others, to temper our knowledge, whatever cost, so that you are glorified, and to do all that we do and say all that we say governed by your word and empowered by your spirit so that you will do what you will with us and through us for your glory and the good of your people. We pray these things in Christ's blessed name. Amen.